You're worth a great deal to me. You're going to give me Blake, his crew, and his undamaged ship. The Federation wants the Liberator. You and I are going to give it to them. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 9, where we're talking about Project Avalon. First broadcast on Monday, the 27th of February, 1978. Written by Terry Nation. Surprise, surprise. 9.7 million viewers, so slightly down from Jewel, but well within that sort of range of settled figures for season one. And Michael E. Bryant is back to direct. Now, we praised him considerably for The Way Back and The Web. Mm-hmm. He did quite well here as well, I think. I think so too. Yeah, so good to have Michael E. Bryant back. Richard, this is yours. It is. So, what are your initial thoughts? <laughs> I would actually go out on a limb and say that I think Project Avalon is the peak of season one. The Way Back in Space Fall are better episodes, but they do sort of stand alone as those openers. Mm. This, however, I think is the one that brings the season all together. We've got Blake on a mission against the Federation. Travis and Servlan are back, all the crew all get to do something. You've got some cool sci-fi concepts in there with you know, the android and, mm. and the colony or whatever it is. So it really brings the whole of the season together. I think from here, let's be honest, probably is a bit of a downhill. Not, not to say they're all bad from here, but we are, I think, going down the hill in season one now. Yes, that's pretty much the notes I had. I, I think it ticks a lot of the boxes. Yes, Travis and Servlan are back, and Travis in particular, I think, is in, in really good form here. Yes, it is the episode that moves Servland from being a one-off to a regular and, yes. and that shows. Yes, she's also good. As you said, the regulars all pretty much get something to do. The direction is quite good and it's actually not a bad story in and of itself. No, it's a really easy story to watch. It's a very enjoyable story to watch. It fills out the length very well. The performances are almost all good. Uh, yes, I do remember, I think actually it was, uh, what podcast was it? Where we picked it probably as the story to show a new yeah, on, viewer on, on, for, the, on the Doctor Who show, yes. Yes, that's right. A story to show a, a new viewer probably who just wants to get a feel for the series. Uh, yeah, so look, lots of positive things we're going to say. There are a couple of negatives. Uh, as I say, the good performances were not quite universal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, very, very chuffed with this one. I guess this is my one to lead us through. I had probably two parts of the discussion, I think. The first one is obviously Project Avalon along with Serverland and Travis. And then we probably then would talk about how that impacts the regulars. I think it's the second part. Yep. So we do start off on the unnamed planet, and it's obviously very cold. We're showing some stock footage of a blizzard, and then Travis and his mutoid walk through a blizzard into some caves. Yes, and Travis has a lovely little line that sort of sets up the atmosphere, where he says, I find this planet unnerving. And I have to say, the caves are obviously... Look, they're shot in Wookiee Hole, which doubled as Voga in uh, Revenge of the Cybermen for Doctor Who, and I think it was a bit of a staple location. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think for a lot of productions. But the location stuff in the car is really, really good. They actually use them to great effect. Yeah, there's some really wonderful stuff in there. The way that Michael E. Bryant shoots them as well, he doesn't floodlight them, which helps. No. And he makes really good use of the three dimensions. So you Mm. see there's lots of shots of... 
people, you know, looking up at the camera and looking yes. down at the camera. Yeah. Well, of course, he directed Revenge of the Cybermen, so I guess it would be a location he'd be familiar with. That is true. And I have to say, with the three dimensions, the stunt where the mutoid jumps down to take out the lone guard, yes. that is really well done. That is a really good piece of work, yes. And, and indeed, the mutoid actually is clearly getting a lot of satisfaction out of it. Out of her work. Yeah, so that's an interesting point that I had as well. When the mutoid comes and takes out the lookout, mm. yeah, she is clearly enjoying herself. And it's a bit of a contrast from that sort of emotionless mutoid that we had in Jewel. Yes. So we also get some very nice cuts between her remote control and the other mutoids to bring them in. And I guess in a bit of world building, we, we discover, probably one for the Liberator database, but we discover clearly that mutoids are immune to the cold. Yes. One thing about this scene that's interesting is Travis again relies on a traitor mm. or possibly an infiltrator and I actually did wonder whether this was part of a Travis long game again where he's actually recruited Turlock and got him to either infiltrate the group or turned him or whatever mm. and then use that to set him up yes and, and the inference is he's clearly been watching Avalon's group for a while while he's been setting his other plans in motion I mean look clearly there is a lot of work gone on behind the scenes to set this plan up yes and whatever Probably leads into Travis's thing, as you said. Travis's strategy is, again, to draw Blake into an elaborate trap. It does clearly rely on other things happening. The scientists have only just created the play or the virus thing that he wants. He then has to capture Avalon to create the android. So it is quite an elaborate plan. It is. One thought that occurred to me watching that is that if Travis had simply wanted just to kill Blake... Mm. He could have done it here. Yes, if, he, if he'd waited for Blake to come down and meet Avalon, and mm. then brought in the group to take out that group, yeah, he he could have got Blake in this one. Yes, exactly. The next scene is where they discover where Avalon's group is hiding, and of course, after they've taken Avalon away, there's a massacre. Yes, I love the way that that's scripted as well. That just Travis is just finish it, mm. and then Turlock just realizes. They're going to kill us. Yeah, we're all dead. Yeah, he has that moment of realisation and then they just go for it. Mm. Look, I'm not going to mention Brian's direction in every single scene here, but again, the way that he blocks the scene with Shevna and Avalon during that thing, where Shevna just sort of slowly circles around in front of Avalon and she comes around in front of him. Again, it's not a big deal, but you just see that little bit of thought put into the Mm. body language of the characters that that helps to tell a story. And I was going to say, if you're watching the massacre closer, you do actually see the moment where Shevna shot in the shoulder and he collapses. He's one of the very first ones shot. Okay. You do actually see the impact of the flash charge or whatever go off on his arm. Oh, wow. And then he collapses. Of course, the main reason for the convoluted nature of the plan is that the Federation have changed tack. Rather than just wanting Blake stopped, they actually now want the ship. Yes. Which, I guess, is a follow-on from Seek, Locate, Destroy, where they've now processed whatever information they got from Callie. They've seen the Liberator in action. They now realise, obviously, what a great kick-ass ship it is. Yeah. It makes perfect sense in narrative terms that the Federation would want this resource, but it works for the TV show in a fictional sense as well, Mm -hmm. because... The odds are now more difficult for Travis. His task is more difficult. Yep. So therefore, when he fails at it, it's not him failing at the same thing again and again and again. He now has got extra obstacles which cause him to fail. The other thing, of course, that this does quite clearly show is that there has been some time elapsed between certainly Seek, Locate, Destroy and this, yes. and most likely, I think, Duel and this. Yes, Travis makes the point that he's had two chances where he could have actually destroyed Blake, but he didn't because, again, because he has to capture the ship. Now, do you think that one of those is Jewel? 
I guess it depends really what Travis put in his report, maybe, when he got back to Federation <laughs> space. Yes, did he mention the two old ladies that stopped him from killing Blake, or, or did he just say that Blake had a more powerful ship and got away? Yeah, or blamed it on the mutoid. <laughs> well, yeah, that's right. So there's at least one untelevised encounter here. Yes. Now, the other thing, of course, that we get is when Servalan arrives, she makes a note that there's been two attempts on her life, mm. which... She doesn't directly attribute to Blake, but because, of course, he's now becoming a symbol. You've heard, of course, that there have been two attempts on my life. I have. I was very concerned. I consider Blake to be responsible. Oh, not personally, of course. But stories of his exploits are still circulating. They excite people. The fact that he is still free gives them hope, and that is dangerous, Travis. Hope is very dangerous. The loss of it can be fatal. Travis, of course, makes the appropriate sympathetic noises that he was very concerned <laughs> when, when he heard. It's yeah. interesting. Watching this scene, once again, in a number of scenes here, Travis, when he's just going about his sort of day-to-day job, mm. he's again shown to be very personable mm. and very calm and relaxed. He, yeah. he's, he's not always that shouty sort of thing. He's just a normal guy. Yes. You notice also he and Servalan, although she attempts to play the power role with him. You know, she makes the thing that there are people who want him removed and that she so far has resisted them and has made you know, a point in his defence that because his orders have changed, it's now appreciably harder for him. But he really just brushes that off. You know, he, he's almost an equal, I think, in his eyes. Yeah, which is a very interesting way for him to play it because it's very clear in those scenes that Servalan is distancing herself from Travis. Yes. He is now very much someone that she has tasked with this problem, and if he doesn't succeed, well, that's his fault. And even in the way the scenes are staged, there is now a greater distance between them. Their body language to each other is far more formal than it was in Seeklocate Destroy. And so you do start to see Servalan just giving herself some political distance from Travis. Yes, well, I suppose, and we did mention this in Seeklocate Destroy, she has really hung herself out on a limb by appointing Travis and she mentions the expense but there'd also be a lot of political capital involved here as well she's had to maneuver to get him the ships he wants she's clearly had to support him when other factions perhaps are unhappy with her failure to deliver this project has clearly cost a lot of time and money and expenditure in developing the plague etc so obviously she's stalling in the hope that this one's going to be the one where it comes through but she is crawling back down that limb obviously she gets to take the credit if it's a success But yes, there is a limit to her patience and it's about to run out. Yeah. The other note I had here really about Travis for this one, although, yes, he's quite relaxed when he's just, you know, waiting for things to happen, he's still very ruthless and still quite callous, really, in in the way he approaches this. The guards really are just there to die to make Blake's escape look difficult. He has no qualms about just grabbing some random bloke and testing the plague on him. And indeed, I noted in Seek, Locate, Destroy that their Travis, to my mind, was more psychotic than sadistic. Mm. Whereas here, you do start to see those sadistic trends come out. There's the bit where he's looking over Avalon as she's being interrogated, where he, he says openly, I can force you to do anything. Mm. And, and he's gloating then at that point. He's very, very satisfied. And then the scene, as you say, where he does test the virus on that labour grade, the look on his face is one of pleasure 
Mm. You know, he's really enjoying watching this happen, watching this guy suffer. Which is a shame because, it's, unfortunately, it's not a particularly good effect. It's a bloody woeful effect. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, let's, <laughs> let, let, let's not beat around the bush. It's obviously a crossfade. Yeah, it's a crossfade. And there are two problems. One, the matching between them both is mm. woeful. The collar restraint of the guy yeah. is about 12 inches different in the two shots. <laughs> like, you can't get past that. Plus, a large amount of it is actually shown via a view screen. So you can't even see it properly anyway. No, I think that's obviously, I would say, a time and budget thing. Oh, it would have to be. I know in the novel they obviously retained, I think, what was clearly the original intention in the script, which is that the bloke, you know, is quite terrified of what, what's happening to me. Yeah, goes to scream and then the fungus yeah. is in his mouth, all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, I, I remember reading that quite vividly, yes. Mm. In contrast, Servalan remains very, very cold during the, the Very viewing. detached. She's... I would suspect rather horrified, mm. but deliberately not showing it, which is why you get that very cold, mm. detached expression. Mask. Yep. Yeah, compared to Travis, who is sort of like, oh, this is exciting. You can imagine in his mind, he's picturing that happening to Blake. Yes, and he's completely satisfied at the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll just leave that one there. I do just want to say, though, while we're talking about the special effect... As much as I bag the actual effect, the aftershot of just the, the sort of the skull of the moss on it, yes, that is very cool. That is, that is really quite nasty. Yeah. I was going to say one other thing with Travis. You very much get the impression in the final scene that he is actually willing to let Blake release the plague if it means that they both die. You notice there he's about to bring the gun arm up and Servalan just, no. She realises that there is a chance that Blake will do it. Oh, yes. And that she's not ready to go yet. No, although there is a moment of hesitation from Travis, just a tiny Mm. moment where he's sort of picturing what his death would be like. And Mm. he's not desperate to go down that way, but you're right. I think if he had the choice and he knew it would get Blake... Yes, he probably would let it happen. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, he does get to monologue again at the end, even though he does make the save. And, you know, Servalan says, well, this was a complete failure and you're suspended, and then turns and stalks off. He just lies on the floor. It takes all my life. I will destroy you, Blake. I will destroy you. I will destroy you. So that's, I guess, a bit of a run through Travis's plan. We obviously haven't talked about Avalon the regulars, so... Let's talk about Avalon. Yes. Let's now talk about Avalon. We're told that she clearly is a well-known and influential leader of rebels yeah the impression that i got was she is somebody who goes around to a oppressed society Mm. teaches them what to do you know how to organize how to put together resistance cells or whatever it is so she's like a union organizer (laughs) (laughs) but i mean avon sort of makes the quip about she might be there for the ice crystals yes then of course when he hears that there's a slave labor force on the planet Blake's immediately, oh no, Avalon will be there because of that. Yeah, you do get the feeling that she sort of comes in, stirs them up, gives them the resources, you know, maybe does some gun running, whatever, and then moves on to the next one and sort of lets them carry on. Yes. Starts these rebel cells on, on what is it, 30 different planets or something, I think they say. Yeah. She's very young to have been quite (laughs) successful like that, but... (laughs) It is an interesting choice, and a good choice, I think, to have her played as a woman, and not to comment on it either. Yeah. 
Having said that, I mean, this is Project Avalon. She doesn't actually get an awful lot to do. I mean, there's obviously the bit in the cave where she's first captured. But after that, she really only gets the scene with Travis where she's in the interrogation device. Now, I don't know why they felt the need to undress her and just have the two silver strips. I guess it probably emphasises the fact that she's, from an interrogation point of view, that she's quite vulnerable, clearly. Yeah, there's partly that. As a kid, I rationalised it as being that the scientist dude who's sort of like creepily looking over her, if he's going to make a replica of her body, he's got to see the body. Yes, true. You know, if he's going to take all the, the measurements. And yes, well, that's true. I feel true. creepy saying that. Whether it's deliberate or not, it is a very, very uncomfortable scene because of the way that she's being treated. Yes, for sure. It's an interesting uh, directorial choice. Mm. But, yeah, other than that, though, she doesn't really have a lot to do. Look, which is probably for the best. Yeah, I was sort of wondering how to approach that, but yes, indeed. Look, she's not the best actress. As we were discussing before off mic, given that she is tied down with two bits of tinfoil to cover herself... And a red flashing light above her head. Yeah, Yeah. she's not acting under the best of circumstances, but she's not terrible, but she's not at the same level as the rest of the cast. No. The other one of Avalon's group that we really meet and get to spend some time with is, of course, David Bailey as Shevna. Now, he is really good. Yes, he is really good. The way the script treats Shevna is really, really good because all the way through, you have these possible hints that maybe he's the infiltrator. Mm. Certainly, when he's put on board, the crew start to suspect him. And he has that scene where he's just sort of giving Avalon that really strange look where they're yeah. sitting in the cabin. Yeah, which could be read as him acting suspiciously. Mm but it actually is him being himself suspicious. Yes. There's even a really clever line in there that Travis has where he says, if I've read my man correctly, Blake will be here within 12 hours. Mm. Now, the way that's clearly meant to be is if he's read his man, his man being Blake, yes. and he's understood Blake. Mm. But you could also interpret it as his, his man on the inside. Yes, he actually has two infiltrators. Yeah, that again arouses suspicion about Shevna. But yeah, he plays that very, very subtly all the way through And very effectively, it's a really good performance. It is. They also sort of subvert the secret entrance trope by Shevner actually saying, well, he doesn't know where to go. He thinks we can get in this way, but he can't lead them to the cell block. No. I thought he was really, really good. I guess we probably, at this point, should talk about our regulars. One thing with this episode is that in the original script, it was Callie who had met Avalon, leading into the fact that she's a resistance fighter. And indeed, it would be quite believable that... Avalon had popped into Saurian Major, helped organise the resistance Mm. there and gone away. Yes. But for the filming, that was swapped and that role was given to Jenna. This is around the time, and we'll perhaps talk about this when we get to the end of the season. This is around the time that Sally Nevet is becoming really unhappy uh, with the way Jenna's being developed. And it is a case, this was done to give her something to do, basically. To actually go on a mission. Yes. Yes. So Callie has now been taught how to fly the Liberator. Yes. Yeah, Jenna makes a point she's taught her too well. Yes, very convenient. Yes. And of course, yes, Jenna teleports down to the planet as part of the raid and gets to be part of the running gun battle. But Yeah, and look, it works. We know that Jenna was a smuggler and was tied mm. up with various nefarious characters, so it's not unbelievable or unrealistic that she knew Avalon. No. It just would have been more realistic if it had been Callie as intended. Yes, indeed. But look, better than operating the teleport. <laughs> One thing I did find a bit uncharacteristic is Jenna does that sort of startle and then screams when the injured Shevna comes into Callie's cabin. You can almost imagine Sally and Yvette 
playing that in a you know, more restrained way, like you know, mm. being shocked and surprised. I mean, you, you get that. Her friend is lying there unconscious. There is a killer about. Yes. And suddenly she's startled. You get her being scared. Mm. You could also imagine the director going, no, no, we need to ramp up the tension. This is the big finale. Give us a scream, Sally. Go mm. on. That's, that's drama. It's the 1970s. True. I mean, look, I guess in her defence, look, she does compose herself again quite quickly and she's all fish and business again when they get back out to take out the robot. Oh, absolutely. But of the others, look, Avon really, again, is shown to be quite sarcastic. He doesn't really have a lot to do this week. I really like Avon in the opening scenes because he clearly knows he's not going down on the planet for this mission and he is incredibly relaxed about that mm. and is sort of very happy for Blake to go away on his mission because it doesn't really affect him. No. One thing I did like, you notice he clearly doesn't trust Gan to monitor the Federation ships properly because he comes in and tells him, you do realise they may not hold to that flight pattern. <laughs> <laughs> and he gets some acerbic lines. And again, when Blake's on the planet and the Federation ships come into view, mm. Avon is the one who takes charge. He decides what course of action to take. And he really challenges the others. Well, have you got a better idea? Yeah. And again, Jan Chappell, you know, very good actress, mm. you know, way above the material she's been given. She really has that couple of seconds that shows the whole... I want to have, I don't have, you're right, damn you, but you are right. Mm. And she conveys it all just with a couple of looks. Yeah. You notice when he is being sarcastic, though, about Avalon being... Another idealist, poor but honest. <laughs> you do notice Blake immediately counters his sarcasm by saying... Is your anticipation eager enough to come down there with me? Okay, if you're going to be a smart-ass about this, fine, you can come. Yes. Avalon is too smart, they'd be baited into it. Yes. And again, I suppose one other thing, just while we're talking about Avon, he is again here very much the ship's technical expert. It's him, obviously, that deactivates and reprograms the robot. It's also him that works out that the Federation guns are set on a low discharge. Yes, that was an interesting moment, I thought. Yeah, and even Blake defers to him. He says, look, here's the gun. What do you make of this? Yeah, and that whole scene, because that's the scene that confirms that Travis has let them escape to get on the Liberator, yes. which is where the whole final act then is set up. That's right. Probably the last point I had with Avon, there is obviously in a lot of fandom circles that idea that he and Callie are probably at this point forming some sort of relationship and later on they perhaps are in a relationship of sorts. You notice when she's lying on the floor unconscious, he comes in and he's obviously concerned. I mean, he's the one who comes over to check that she's okay and he clearly has put her in the chair when the others come into the room later. Why he didn't put her on the bed, I don't know, but he's clearly put her on the chair. That is true. Which I guess shows he is obviously, on some level, he is concerned about her. Speaking of characters who are very happy they're not going down on the mission... The contrast between Villa thinking he's not needed mm. when he's very relaxed, he's cracking jokes, he's very happy, and then suddenly being told, come down and bring your box of tricks, and he's suddenly very unhappy. And he has <laughs> his line about, he's sick of being indispensable. I'm tired of being indispensable, yeah. In some ways, he's sort of the comic relief in this episode. He has the line about being indispensable. There's the bit where he's obviously taking a lot of time to get his coat on and, and get himself sorted out with his thermal suit. 
so they just teleport him when he's in the middle of in the middle of putting his jacket on. <laughs> yes, which is a lovely little Avon moment, and you know that he's safe to do it because he's teleporting him down to where Blake and Jenna already are. Yes. So it's almost like Bill's about to arrive with his shirt half undone. No. You know, in the middle of a gunfight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you do notice again, look, Avon and Kelly sort of share that little nod and smile. And yes. They... <laughs> it's very well, nicely played. Yeah. And, and that's where we get Paul Darrow's quota of one big smile for the episode. <laughs> and again, you notice when the teleport's being operated, it ends with those two <laughs> rotating switches. Yes, it's exactly the same sequence, yes. <laughs> I do like, though, while we're talking about Villa, once again, and we see this throughout season one, his lock picking is actually very technical and detailed and takes time. It's not just waving a magic wand and the door opens. No, it, that's right. Interestingly enough, I, I'd never really noticed before, but there are two doors for them to get into the base, which... Look, it makes sense in terms of security, but I think it might just be padding. A little bit, perhaps. I mean, there is sort of the... They do talk about the inner complex and the outer complex. Oh, look, they justify it. They, yes. they, they cover it with a line. But it does, yes, chew up another minute or so of screen time, I think. <laughs> yes. One other thing with Villa, you notice while he's with the others, he's quite tough with the guard. You know, he gets a... His name is Blake, and this is his authority. You know, and he's sticking the, he actually sticks the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. gun in the guy's ribs. Yeah. But when it actually comes to the fight... He's really kind of useless. And I mean, Blake has to drag the guard off him. Yeah. And he spends the next minute or something. <coughs> yes. Now, of course, Blake, when he does drag the guard off Villa, then breaks the guard's neck. Yes. Yes. Which does show he's, again, this ruthless streak. He is not afraid to get his hands dirty. No, it is very, very full on. And again, I think that the interesting thing about Blake's character here is this is a moment where he does acknowledge his mortality at some point i think blake realizes he's not going to get out of that base with avalon mm. and in fact he is shot and it's only because they're using the stun guns yes that he gets away and i think deep down inside it you can sort of feel blake thinking this could be the one where my luck runs out mm. he also clearly at the start he gets to make the moral point about uh, when they come across the site of the massacre the guns are still in the racks they probably tried to surrender and that the federation have just gunned them down yeah that, again, is a nice little restatement of how evil mm. the Federation are, but it also gives Blake that extra motivation to, as you say, yeah, go and just break someone's neck mm. on Monday tea time viewing. <laughs> yes, indeed. Excellent. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, now, which, of course, leaves Gan. Now, we are, uh, for anyone who's familiar with Blake 7, we will be having a more in-depth discussion about Gan next week. Yes. However, here he is shown to have a headache. Yes, he's again taking one of his little Panadols, whatever it mm. is. and Yes, which I guess is, for anyone who's familiar with the series, is a bit of a flag for what's coming up. Yes. But yes, there will be a longer discussion about Gan next week. We've got, I think, a couple of important plot points to cover. The first is that whole little subplot of the Liberator being spotted, so having to go off station. Yes. Which does lead to another one of our watchouts for the... Uh, the teleport doesn't work until the last second to heighten the tension trope. And it is very much last second. It is very much last second because you see the robot's flame yes. go, go through the, uh, the stencil outline. Yeah, that's right. I did notice, though, that suddenly the Liberator's communicators have become incredibly precise, mm. that you need to be exactly on station for them to work. Yes. I mean, I guess they do make the point about using the planet as a shield, so... Oh, I totally get that they would go out of communication range as they're doing in the orbit, but shortly... As you're approaching the station, like you start to come into yeah, communication. Yeah, well, you would range. think so, yes. That, that's just a nice little plot convenience. 
We mentioned the robot just then. I said in Seeklocate Destroy that I thought it worked better here. Do you think that it does? Oh, most definitely. Yeah. You notice it's been changed too. It's had its arms shortened, so it doesn't sort of have those long sort of dangly <laughs> arms either. They've been cut off at the elbow joints. Yes, and it is shot a lot better here as well. Well, it is. And clearly they've worked out, because I think in Seeklocate Destroy they dragged along on wires, I think, because mm. the radio control wouldn't work. Here they actually bolted it to a trolley later on camera tracks. Yes. Um, and it looks really effective in those caves. Yeah, it actually moves quite quickly. Yeah, and because again, and we talked about the caves not being floodlit, you can see the lights of the robot illuminating the passage as it comes down. They hear the hum, obviously, as it's getting closer. Yeah. No, I thought it worked really well here. Yeah, it's a really good example of how a director trying to be a little bit different and putting in a little bit more, not effort, I think that's the wrong word, but... Michael O'Brien was a young director trying to make his mark mm. and look at how he could do things differently. And the robot here is a really good example of how a little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of more, you know, not, I don't want to say effort, but effort's the best word I've got, can make something like a terrible prop robot look better. Yes, certainly. Talking about this off air, we did make the point that the gun battle maybe is lacking sort of the Camfield touch. I yeah. actually thought it was well staged. It was well staged. It's a lot of quick cuts. Mm. Uh, it's a lot of POV shots and back and forths. Yep. So that works. But yes, I would have liked to see Douglas Camfield do that. Do I that. mean, look, they've obviously gone a bit of effort. They've obviously set charges and that in the wall behind it to blow, clearly for the shots, missing our heroes. Yes, yes. There is an anecdote here from Sally Nevette. Because she hadn't done a lot of TV, I think she sort of said she was fairly inexperienced about how dubbing sound and that sort of stuff worked. And apparently the director said to her, well, when we shoot this bit, run around the corner and go bang, bang to, to, to obviously count off the shots. And of course, she took him very literally, ran around the corner, <laughs> pointed the gun and screamed, bang, bang! <laughs> and then, of course, got, I think, a bit embarrassed and everybody fell about laughing. <laughs> One, I think, for the convention anecdotes. One other thing probably, and again, it's sort of unfortunately Jenna with a firearm. You notice there's a bit there where they're just starting to get Avalon out where she actually points the gun at the ceiling and fires. And unfortunately, the sound guys backed her up by dubbing the sound effect on. (laughs) Well, at least they were watching. Yeah, well, that's true. One other note I did have just about the direction. There are a few similarities there, I think, between... This is sort of a cut-price version of Star Wars in some of the staging. Mm. We have sort of the archways where they're moving through the corridors in the gun battle. You, you can draw a bit of a parallel, I think, to the Tandy 4 at the start of Star Wars. Done on a Blake 7 budget, yeah, but... Yeah, yeah, plus the bit where Serverland comes striding into the base. Yes, that is true. Yes, and indeed, I think, actually, our friend at the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed has actually done some visual comparisons... Uh, on his feed that you can go and check out. <laughs> uh, yeah, Servalan is certainly shot from a sort of a mid-range shot looking up quite a few times to make it look powerful. Yes. Just as they did for Vader. So yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, that is a fair comment. So, of course, the final step of the plan when they get the fake Avalon up on the Liberator is that she will release the little CSO file containing the plague. Yes. Now, she is, of course, stopped by the crew. And I have to say... That is a very good piece of physical acting from David Jackson, where mm. he's having the fight with the robot. He really does convey how strong that, the fact that, you know, and you see the look of horror on Gan's face yeah. as he thinks he's got her, and then suddenly you just see his arms being prized open. Yeah, and you can hear the motors of the androids sort of like going up a couple of gears. Yeah, to... it's a strain because yeah. Gan is clearly quite strong. I thought that he does that really well. Yeah, it's a very good scene. There's also a lovely little bit there where after the androids dropped the file mm. and then she gets away from Gan, you actually see just for a couple of seconds her looking yeah, for where the file to try and find to stomp on it or whatever. Yeah, lucky, lucky it fell on the tunic, isn't it? It's very lucky, yes. Yes. I have to say with the Philo, and, and again, it's probably the, the sort of overanalyzing trope from us, but 
given the fact that we see when they test it that it burns out in about 23 seconds, she really would have to have most, if not all, of the crew really together before she cracked it. You see, I didn't read it that way. I'm not disagreeing with what you say now that you raise it, but I sort of took it as being that it only took 23 seconds because it was in a very confined area and that if it was released on Liberator, it would expand and take the whole ship up and sort of burn up behind itself. Yeah, okay. That's that's, I'm sort of thought of it like that. Because you're right, otherwise it it wouldn't work. No, you'd have to go on the flight deck and do it, basically. And and given that we assume that she was about to do it at that moment when Blake wasn't there and Avon wasn't there. Mm. But, Yeah. yeah. Okay, interesting. And look, we spoke about the standoff earlier. It's a very good scene. I note that now Blake has met Servalan now. Yes. And indeed recognises Servalan, which makes sense. She's presumably a fairly public figure. You would think so. Um, but he, he does sort of have that moment of, wow, I, I know you. Yes, I'd share it with you. And, and the, the Supreme, Supreme Commander. Commander. Yes. Mm. Uh, so that's a very nice standoff. It ends with Travis failing again. Servalan makes very clear that he is taking the fall for this one, which given the way he treated the mutoid last episode, you know, is a nice little piece of justice. Indeed. He does save the day, of course, as the android drops the file. He does make the leap forward to save it. Servalan, of course, is totally unimpressed and just turns on a heel and walks off. Yep, again, a brilliant portrayal by Stephen Grove there, who yeah. he, he looks like a man who knows he's failed, but also knows that he was a couple of inches away from death. Yes, he, he is making a real effort. This is a very delicate thing. He's very slowly creeping up the android. He clearly is quite concerned about what happens if yeah. this thing cracks. Because, yeah, Blake isn't there to share the death with him. No. I guess a couple of other points before we go into our regular segments. You notice when they're in the teleport bay, they are now starting quite badly to run out of teleport bracelets. Yes, that um, was. I think I counted 14. Uh, in the rack. I didn't count them. And then they have that white box sitting over the rest of it clearly to hide the empty trays. And it was a case, I think, that people were nicking them. Oh, yeah. Well, this is the stage now, as you said, where it had gone out on TV and people wanted souvenirs. Yes. And they get to the end of the season and the chap who made them had to go and knock up a heap more. While we're on prop watch, you notice the little entertainment unit thing is back. (laughs) Superland's got it this week. She has. We'll move then to our regular segments. Now, the first of our regular segments is our guest cast. We have sort of given shout-outs, really, to our two main guest cast in Julia Vidler and David Bailey. We have. Uh, Julia Vidler, I believe, had a slightly interesting uh, introduction to acting. Well, if you listen to the DVD commentary for Project Avalon, Stephen Greif makes the point that um, he thinks she got into acting through, like, winning a talent competition of some description. He does say that he may be wrong, and if he is, he (laughs) apologises. But... (laughs) But, yeah, um, look, she clearly doesn't have a particularly long career. I think she disappears, really, once we get into the 80s. Yes. She is back in Blake 7 one more time. Yes, indeed. She does have another role in Blake 7. If anyone remembers a series called Shoestring, starring Trevor Eve, it's roughly contemporary with Blake 7. I did watch that not all that long ago, and I did recognise her in the episode of Shoestring she's in. (laughs) I'm not familiar with that one, sorry. No. I believe she auditioned for the role of Jenna. I think, but clearly obviously was unsuccessful. So the other main guest that we've been very complimentary about is, of course, David Bailey. Now, well known to fans of BBC sci-fi as Dask in The Robots of Death, which is the Doctor Who story written by Chris Boucher. Mm -hmm. And he's very good in that as well. Yes. 
And I think uh, if you're a big Finnish fan, he is the toy maker, I think, when they did their version of Nightmare Fair. He which is, is, yes. The aborted Colin Baker story. And I think he's been in a few other big finishes in the same role as well. Yes. Uh, now, he actually has had a very long career. He's done a lot of things. One of the examples is he was in the Henry VIII and his Six Wives telly movie. But more modern terms, he was Cotton in, I think, all the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Yeah, he's the one he can't talk and he trained the parrot. There is uh, quite a good interview with him, uh, if anyone's ever come across the Caldor City website, who do the spin-off audios in the uh, Robots of Death universe. Yes. He has reprised his role as Dask in there. There's quite a good interview with him on that site. He actually had periods out of acting where he was working designing furniture for a period. Yeah, most of the 80s he's got no credits to his name at all. No, he was working other stuff. He's also worked as a, and I think still works, as a professional photographer. Okay. Um, and different things. So he clearly he had a lot of irons in the fire, I think. A, a very minor role, but I need to give the Doctor Who references, mm. uh, is the scientist is played by John Baker, who was a Time Lord in Colony in Space Part 1. He was a member of the audience in Planet of the Spiders Part 1. Jesus. <laughs> and, I, I'm sorry, that is scraping the bottom of the barrel a bit. <laughs> and he plays Ralph in Part 1 of The Visitation. That I do remember, but yes, okay. <laughs> so yeah, he has a couple of Doctor Who credits we just needed to mention. Yeah. Now, of course, we did mention during the episode Linus Barber as the mutoid, who I thought was really good, and it's a shame we never see her again. <laughs> yeah, it would have, would have been nice to see her in a larger role. Yeah, it would have been. This actually is pretty much her first TV role. I think she may have done some work on a film prior to this, but this, this is very much one of the first things she ever did. And one final mention, he's clearly there probably for the stunt work, but uh, the member of Avalon's crew that Travis grabs and then strikes with a weapon at the start appears to be Stuart Fell. So yet yet another Blake 7 appearance for him. He fell off a cupboard a couple of weeks ago. (laughs) That's uh, two appearances down, 10 to go. Yes. So our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. A couple of points that I wanted to make here. One of the interesting ones here is we've talked a lot about terrorism and what was going on in the world whilst Blake 7 was being made. Mm. Avalon as a female terrorist is an interesting choice to make. And I'm, I'm going to look at some of the real-world possible influences of that. Yep. The most obvious one is Leela Khalid, who was a member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and most famously was the first woman to hijack an airplane when she was a member of Black September in 1969. She hijacked the TWA flight from Rome to Tel Aviv, and was photographed at the time, got away, and actually had plastic surgery to change her nose and chin because she was so famous at that point. Yeah, okay. And then she went on and she hijacked, in 1970, the LL flight from Amsterdam to New York, again, to make a point about Palestine. She was very, very much the female terrorist. We know that Chris Boucher obviously considered her influential because he named the character of Leela in Doctor Who after her. Yes, And I think she was the inspiration for Callie too, I think. Or one of the inspirations for Callie. Certainly the name was, yes. Yes. So she's very much in the zeitgeist. Uh, Paddy Hurst was very much in the zeitgeist at this time. Uh, Of course, the heiress to the Hurst fortune, Mm -hmm. uh, who was kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army in 1974, later involved in a couple of bank robberies and was arrested after a fairly big shootout at a fuel station. Now, she was tried in 1976... Uh, famously, she was found guilty the first time round, despite her plea that she had been brainwashed, mm. that it was you know, Stockholm Syndrome. So she was very much in the in the press, and she would have been in jail at the time this was made. She was released when President Carter commuted her sentence in 1979. But yeah, they both were very much in the media at the time. And I thought also worth mentioning Golda Meir. Oh yes. Who was the 
first female yeah. prime minister of Israel, Israel yeah. and, and indeed anywhere in the world at the time, mm. from 1674. She was involved with the Yom Kippur War, but she was also, I think, in this context, the Israeli prime minister who, after the Black September assault on the 1972 Munich Games, was the one who said, right, the system isn't working, I'm sending Mossad after these guys, and, you know, sort of laid down the smack. So Yes, very uh, much so. So again, they're just some female people in, in the terrorist sphere that we can... Talk about, not that I'm saying Golda was a mm. terrorist, but fighting terrorists. Yes. I've got a couple of other little points to make here. Yep. One, we need to give a shout out to the very 1970s robotics that we see when the Avalon android is taken apart. Yeah. Look, as a kid, I thought it was brilliant. As an adult, you just go, yeah, that is the 1970s. Okay. Yeah, that, that's probably not a particularly good effect. I believe that took a lot of time because they did that pretty much live in studio, I think. And that was very much... And again, I probably should put a shout out to the Making Black 7 site for flagging this. We appreciate your work. <laughs> we, do. we really do. Yeah. Julia Vidler had to sit still for several minutes, I think, not even really breathing, basically, for that shot to be put together. And once again, Avon has to reprogram her by actually physically reprogramming circuit boards. He can't just sort of change the data. Give, give her a software upload. No. Yeah. And one point that really annoys me, really, really annoys me, and I mentioned it here because it's weird a bit, is when Blake is looking for Avalon and goes through the list of the prisoners. Yes. It's very obvious whoever's doing the list of names knows that Avalon's the one he's after because every other one, it's Daynor, Pelor, then he gets to Avalon, and Avalon. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so obvious in his voice intonation and it really annoys me. Maybe it's part of the plan. <laughs> N15 Raker. T5, Pelor. One, Pilar. F2, Avalon. Uh, the big flashing light. Yes, you found her. <laughs> <laughs> but we will make the yeah, other note that Shevner is armed with an M16. Uh, yes, again, very 1970s. Yes, indeed. We then move to the Liberator database, which is where we collect all the ongoing universe references. Now, we've sort of talked about the mutoids being immune to cold. The planet is said at different times to be minus 120 and minus 180. That is very cold. That is very, very cold. We, of course, get the exposition about the planet. They've moved into the long cold, yes. uh, eight and a half Earth years. The ice crystals really are. They're, they're not actually really a MacGuffin because they're just mentioned in passing. Yes, but they are a incredibly valued and rare thing. Yes, they are, uh, <laughs> that the Federation uses in heavy-duty lasers. Yes, we get the return of the little uh, analysis dome thing in front of Zen where yes. they put the plague in there. We saw that in Time Squad was where it was first introduced. Yes, and there's a lovely little line in there that just sort of adds this real worldness there where Zen says it was originally known incorrectly yes. as the Phobon plague. I just love that little reference. Mm. Again, we touched on this earlier. This is the first time we get a definite statement that there are untelevised adventures happening in this universe. Yes, it's hinted at and you can certainly extrapolate it in the past. Yeah. But it's clearly implicitly stated. Here it is explicitly stated, which of course provides big finish for endless scope (laughs) (laughs) for their adventures. It does. And as I mentioned earlier, this is Black and Servaland's first meeting. Yes. Now, probably to our our slightly lighter segments, our first of which is Ganwatch. Now, Gan actually... Doesn't get a lot to do here, but he is a lot more involved in this episode than he has been in the last few. Mm. He actually gets to do some stuff at the controls of the ship. He's involved in the quick orbit. Yes. Uh, He's the one that is looking after Avalon for a time. He's the one that sneaks away with her tunic. And again, we will come back to this next week, because as we said earlier, next week will be the big GAN discussion. Yeah. 
This probably will be a lighter game watch, though, because some of what we do see here is probably set up for next week. Yeah, that is true. Mild spoilers, but yes, we will be coming back to game. And finally, what cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? Uh, look, not a cool line, but I, as I mentioned earlier, the bit where he teleports Villa down when he's still half-dressed. That's, that's a very funny, particularly the look he gives afterwards. And I do like the bit where Callie's sort of being all you know technical, we need to do this, this, and this. And a, Speculation and fast turns aren't going to make it any shorter. Yes. Let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he gets to make his little quip about, uh, does the planet support intelligent life? Does the Liberator. <laughs> Plus, of course, his description of Avalon as another idealist. Poor but honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, look, not a big Avon episode. He doesn't have a lot to do this week. Which, of course, leaves just the last thing, our Player of the Week. Now, this is my one to lead us through, so I'll let you go first. I had a couple of possibilities for this one, but in the end, I really couldn't go past Stephen Griefus, Travis. He's, Snap. Yeah, I thought it might be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he is really, really good. We've praised him a lot all through this episode. The way that he does the big acting without it being over the top, mm. but again, the subtle joy he has at watching people suffering, the sheer terror and just you know cold sweats he has at the end when he grabs yep. the thing and, and even his monologue you know, we, we made a bit of fun of the the trope of the travis monologue but he's really bitter in this one it's just a great performance yeah well i think he's realized this plan has come so close to succeeding and unfortunately he's just been thwarted at what literally is the final hurdle yeah i mean he did he succeeded he got the android up onto the ship and clearly that's the part that went wrong where he had no direct control yeah and he probably is also now... It's like when you see those football players that like you know break a leg or an arm during the game. You see they know their season's over. Yeah. He's got that same reaction of like, if he's taken off this mission, he may never get Blake. Yeah, he's screwed. His purpose for living at the moment is... It's been taken, taken away, away from yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, really good performance that betrays all of that. So uh, yeah, very happy to give him our player of the week. Yes, very much. That was my snap. I will give a shout out to Michael E. Bryant because I think this could have been quite a plotting episode, I think maybe mm. with a lesser director. Oh, yeah, he keeps this moving. He's innovative with his camera work. Yeah, he's very, very good. But, yeah, I thought he did a really good job this week. Yeah, I agree. Hmm. So there you have it. That's our discussion of Project Avalon. As we've mentioned a couple of times, we will be back next fortnight with Breakdown, where we will have a much longer discussion about GAN. Set course for XK72. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Get on a thermal suit and come down here fast. Me? Oh, now, wait a minute. It's cold out there, and I'm very susceptible to low temperatures. I've got a weak chest. The rest of you is not very impressive.